Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, November 30th, we are studying 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1-13. to In today's text, St. Paul addresses another concern that the Corinthian Christians had brought to his attention. He teaches them how to think and act when it comes to the matter of eating meat offered to idols. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, the Reverend Dr. Adam Philippeck. Pastor Philippeck serves at Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran Churches, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Philippeck, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks so much. Good to be with you. And as always, greetings to our listeners in the name of our crucified, risen, reigning Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was, who is, and who is to come. Pastor Philippeck, we have a new chapter in 1 Corinthians and really a new section of sorts, although I'm sure there's relations to the previous texts. What kind of context do we need to know as we prepare to look at 1 Corinthians 8? 8 through 10 brings with it its own next section of divisions. I'll just say it like that. I mean, the Church of Corinth has been divided over so many things all the way back to chapter 1 of who do you follow? I follow Apollos. I follow Paul. I follow Cephas. I follow Christ, right? And so Paul has to say, no, absolutely not. I wasn't crucified for you, all of these sorts of things. I came among you in chapter 2. I desire to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he's been marching through the Corinthians' letter to him and responding to all of these divisions going on. So one of the divisions that is going on in Corinth is this whole issue of food and food sacrifices to idols in the home, in the marketplace, and then also in the pagan temples. So there's a public aspect and a marketplace aspect, and a home aspect that you're going to get over the next three chapters. And today we sort of start down that idol and food sacrifice aspect of the chapters. Yeah, back in chapter 2, when he closed out chapter 2, he talked about having the mind of Christ, that you have the mind of Christ, and that you know we're united under his name. That was a very big theme. And I think we just have to keep that in mind as we think about this chapter and the section that we're starting today when it comes to the issue of meat sacrificed to idols, that we need to approach it with that mind of Christ. And not that doctrine's going to be unimportant here, but the the doctrine of love that is taught throughout the scriptures is going to be a very big theme, and how we live in the truth in love for the brother, that that mind of Christ, that's where that comes from, that's going to permeate these couple of chapters. Definitely. Yeah. Now, this is going to be one of those examples, as, as we start here, you know, we he says, now concerning food offered to idols, we have, we have evidence, again, from probably that this is correspondence from the Corinthians. We've seen that before. Now, when you were researching your book, Pastor Philippeck, did you happen to come across this letter that the Corinthians sent to Paul? I did not. I did not. No one has uh, yet. I don't know. No, no, I'm sorry. I can't help you there. I thought maybe with your research, you might have you might have found it in some ancient Greek manuscript. <laughs> <laughs> so, but again, this is this likely is a matter that they've brought to his attention, just like they brought the matter of marriage to his attention previously. And so now he's going to address that here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and this will continue for a couple of chapters. So here is the text for today. 
Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you, who have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. That's our text for today. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. Oh, Pastor Philippek, now concerning food offered to idols. This is a place where we need to do a little bit of work with context because I'm not sure of a direct correlation to food offered to idols in our day and age, maybe in some places, but I don't think I see too much of that in the United States of America. What's, what's Paul addressing here? What's the situation? Yeah, this is foreign to us in the West for sure. But I think the easiest way to get at this is just kind of to remember even the Old Testament sacrifices. So in the Old Testament, you have a lot of sacrifices going on that involve meat, burnt offerings, right? So you're cut an animal up into pieces, for instance, a bull or a cow, and you offer that on the altar of burnt offering to God. And in the Old Testament, it was the food, that, that burnt offering, that meat, was food for the Levitical priests. They would consume all of that and eat, eat that. That was what the Lord used as a gift to sustain them, as opposed to, like, giving money in church today or something like that. I mean, that was part of the regular offering, and they would, they would consume that, and the Lord would sustain them in that. But in the pagan world, when you offered animal sacrifices to a false god, an idol. And in Corinth, we're talking a Greek region, so we're talking Greek gods like Zeus, Apollo, Poseidon, specifically Demeter, and many other other Greek gods. This meat obviously wasn't consumed by an idol, right? I mean, they're false, and so they're not going to swoop down, eat it, and then anything else. And so you have um, the idolaters in the pagan temple afterwards sort of gathering together in the lower dining hall and eating some of the meat, but not all of that meat was consumed. So you have a, a public informal setting, uh, you have the worship sacrifice of, of meat to the idols, then you have the public informal setting where it's consumed, a social gathering of which a lot of people are just expected to be part of, right? This is what we do in our community. So you come out, and if you don't come out for these things, man, you can be excluded from the community and all that sort of stuff. So there was a little 
controversy like how much do you go how far do you go with this and so do i attend those those public gatherings and then what was not consumed which is a lot of leftovers that was sold in the marketplace like uh, you know the kind of modern day equivalent of a grocery store you could go you could buy it and then you could eat it either socially or you could eat it in the privacy of your home own home and so the, the the next this chapter and the next three chapters span all of those different settings and this causes a great divide really to be honest with you among the corinthians surprise surprise right they're divided over all kinds of stuff in the book of of corinthians uh first and second but be, several christians just see this as you know an idol's not real and so it doesn't truly exist and so what is being sold is not really being offered to anybody and so we got to take advantage of this cuz this is discount meat here baby you know this is this is how you feed people and so since we know that this is you know true that it's not an idol's false and that we're not actually doing anything by eating this meat you you can buy it and your conscience is 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 clean you can use it no problem but you have other christians in corinth who say no 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 wait a minute this this is actually a big problem and here's the other side of this coin you know a lot of these christians who have a problem with this are we got to remember coming out of this pagan worship right they're new converts some aren't but a lot are and so when you see this you got to think well wait a minute you eat the meat that's offered to Zeus Apollos Poseidon Demeter and all these other ones um, isn't that really just sort of giving credence to their god participating in this thing oh i guess your god is actually real after all like acknowledging that in in some way shape or form and if you see another christian eating that then um you might be suspicious what is that Christian actually believe and think about God and if they're participating in things that have gone on um, in the uh, sacrificing of this meat prior to everything you know, in, in the temple. And if you are one of the new Christians who has been entrenched in this and have just come out of this, this is a conundrum because if I eat this meat, I'm turning my back on on the one true God and I'm moving back into to paganism, you're breaking the first commandment here, and this is mortally wounding to the conscience, and that's really the issue of 8, 9, and 10, and Paul will use 8, 9, and 10 then in 11 when he talks about the Lord's Supper um, in 10 and 11, but but this is this is really that, that controversy, and it's sort of to solve this, then we have the answer of the majority in emphasis on knowledge. I would kind of just say it's like this, the emphasis on knowledge. Knowledge is not bad. It's not wrong. Actually, if you follow Paul's argument, he's going to acknowledge a lot of truth in what those who are the mature Christians, those who have been catechized and instructed say. He's going to give them, yes, I grant you it's this. Absolutely, you're right. But the problem with knowledge is that indeed it puffs up. And so I'm going to illustrate what one might think in this way. Oh, come on, man. Get with the program, right? We all know what is right and good and true. Idols are false. There's only real one, only really one God, and everything else is from and belongs to him. It's fine. So sort of suck it up, buttercup. Stop whining here and just eat the meat with us already. Already it's fine. So Paul's admonishment and aid is really toward those who think like that, who have an attitude 
honestly in this controversy that that is that is prideful and arrogant to say that you know what i'm right you're wrong i understand this better than you do i've been a christian longer than you and you just need to listen to me and sit down and shut up sort of thing like this is a prideful i want to win an argument and i know it's right and you don't and paul has to talk about how knowledge and pride are not your guiding principle when you're dealing with your fellow brothers it's not about winning an argument man it's not about being right. It's not about knowledge and being puffed up and self-centered because I won the argument. No, it's about dealing with your fellow Christian in love. Knowledge puffs up, but love is your guiding principle. Yeah, and with that in mind, and just the way you were talking about love being the guiding principle concerning knowledge, it reminds me, at least in part, of what Paul talked about in the first part of chapter 6, where he was dealing with the matter of lawsuits between believers, and he comes down to the point, like, why not rather be defrauded? Why not let her, Why not suffer loss rather than go to court with your brother? And this, this thought of love for my brother and being willing to suffer for the sake of my brother in some way, shape, or form, I think is, is very much connected to the way he talked in, in chapter 6. I completely agree with that. I think it, it, he's building on chapter 6. His arguments are much of the same. He's going to lay out his argument in 8, 9, and 10 about love, so that by the time we get to 13, we're actually going to talk what the full-blown love is. Like, we're going to now have it laid out for us in 13. So it, it is he, he is definitely building on what it is to be a Christian and to love, and that is not about self-centered, prideful knowledge. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Now, but as you said, and maybe talk a little bit more about this, Pastor Philippic, this does not mean knowledge is bad, because Paul very much wants them to know these things. And I, I don't have the Greek in front of me, but I recall from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant. I want you to know things. So so talk about the the goodness of knowledge before we spend most of our time today talking about the way that it then gets misused. Yeah, so again, the misuse is about not what you know, but how knowledge is used. You're ex exerting yourself over your brother. But in, in later on in the chapter, when we get to it, and I'll discuss it more further, in 4 through 6, he talks about how there is only one true God, right? There is only the one true Lord. And then he lays heavy on almost the Deuteronomy thing, the Father and the Son, the great Shema thing, I and the Father are one, you know. Shema Yisrael, Eloheinu, Yahweh, Akkad, right? Here, the Lord, O God, the Lord of Israel, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God. So notice, even in Deuteronomy, it's about love, right? Even here, it's about love. And Paul has been talking in the first part of the book about how all of the things that I have taught you, all of the things that I have said to you, all of the things are good and right, but look at what you're doing. I follow Paulus. I follow Paul. And he says, I desired to know nothing. And it's not period there, nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So he ties the sum totality of who Jesus is, what he says, and what he does in chapters 1 and 2 directly to Jesus Christ. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is tuning. All of these things. He even uses this to say in chapter 1, that that wisdom of God, that wisdom of, of Christ, is far superior 
um, to the wisdom of man. You know, it, it's it, the foolishness of God is wiser than Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles, but to, uh, to us who are being saved, Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. So this wisdom and knowledge is grounded throughout the entire book and even in chapter 8 in the true revelation of who Jesus is and what he says throughout all of the scriptures and in his own life and ministry, death and resurrection. I'm really glad you brought up that passage from 1 Corinthians 2 about knowing nothing but Christ and him crucified. That's a great connection to make. Certainly will help us to see how the that knowledge then is shaped by love, the love of Christ. So again, just to to make the point, we're not saying here, Paul's not saying here, that doctrine is somehow bad. Doctrine is good. How we make use of that doctrine, how we live in Christian freedom in light of that doctrine, that's going to be shaped by love. So doctrine and love are going to go together. Uh, anytime we try to elevate one at the expense of the other, we're usually running out of bounds, getting the penalty on the play, going back five yards or more. So doctrine is good, knowledge is good, but we use it in love. This is Paul's point. So take us then into to verse 2, as he continues on this thought, setting the stage particularly how, for how it shapes the matter of meat and idols. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. What is Paul saying there? Yeah, so if you're really thinking, if you really know uh, the, the revelation of God, and you're then, which is good to know that, what you have been handed down, we just established that. But if you are using that to look at your brother and say, oh, come on, get with the program. We all know it's right. Idols are false. There's only one true God. See, I know all this stuff. Everything is from him. He created everything. So suck it up. Stop whining. I'm right. You're wrong. And just eat the meat already. Like if that's how you're going to treat this, then he doesn't emphasize knowledge. It's not about you winning in argument, right? I mean, if you think that that's it, if you think you know, and that's how you're using the the gift of Christ, the, the sacred doctrine that you have been handed down, if that's how you see it, man, then you don't know anything. You don't know anything at all because that's not God. God doesn't command you to pridefully, arrogantly gloat over your brother and shut him up because you're so awesome and you know that's not knowledge. If you think that is, then you have no idea what you're talking about. And that's really kind of the emphasis of two. He doesn't know as he ought to know. And so he kind of just is almost hard law and you feel the guilt and the shame. Like, come on, man, that's how you're going to talk to your brother? Knock it off. Like, if I'm going to paraphrase that, knock it off. You don't You don't really know what you're talking about. You, you seem to think that you have it all figured out and you're Christian, but you are violating the biggest principle of all. You are violating the principle of love, and that is who God is. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, and again, to think about the way Jesus connects those two great commandments, love for God and love for neighbor, that's what's that's what's missing here. You think you've got it all figured out in terms of your love for God, you've got the doctrine straight, but now you're going to to use that as if you can hate your brother and, and so that he, his conscience is now defiled? You don't know so much as you think, dear friend. So pay attention, listen to what Paul has to say. How about verse 3, which seems to, to be the... It's somehow related to verse 2. So on the one hand, if you, you think you know it, you don't really, because you're not showing love to your brother. But then if anyone does love God, he is known by God, is, is the way that the ESV translates. What's going on there in verse 3? 
So yeah, from two, you get the practical application. So if you think you know, the fact of the matter is you don't. You don't truly love God. You're not actually being a Christian like you think you are. You're not fear-loving and trusting God and loving your neighbor, right? You're, you're loving yourself and what you know. And so if you really want the opposite of this, you want to know what, um, what love is. It's love and then God knows you. So really, where Paul moves with this argument, it's very short, it's very confusing in, in our study together, because we're just picking up on one little, and not the whole book together. We've been studying, okay, now we take a day break here, and we take a day break here. You know, you're marching through this, but, you know, this is being read out loud. And so what you get out of this, then, to make sense of verse 3, it, it comes down to this. If someone loves God, It's really only because that person is known by God. God is the source of that person's love. We love because he first loved us. That's 1 John 4, I know, but that's what's going on here. And earlier in that section, it says in in John 4, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as a propitiation for our sins. So being loved by God then, you know it's not about winning an argument. It's not about your pride. It's not about vanity. It's not about arrogance. It's not about self-centeredness. It's about loving one another, your fellow Christian, as God has loved you in Christ. A servant is not above his master, and on the night our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he didn't take the towel around his waist, throw it in the disciples' face, and say, I'm the Lord. My feet are dirty. Get to washing my feet. No, he, the Lord and master, stoops down and washes his own disciples' feet. And then he says, do you understand what I do for you? If I, your Lord and master, do this, you also ought to do this. Love one another. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, so also love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. See, you've been loved, and then now you know. That's the progression of Christ in on the night in which he was betrayed. And so love is actually about sacrifice. You need to die to your sinful self and selfish-centered pride, and you need to live not for yourself, but you need to live for your neighbor and love your neighbor as God has loved you in Christ. He gave up everything. The back to be torn apart with whips, the head to be crowned with thorns, the hands and the feet to be driven through with nails. He loved you unto death, even death upon the cross, and all the while he didn't hate you. He prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He didn't come down from that cross because he knew it would be your death, and God does not desire the death of a sinner, so he gave up everything. And so that is the guiding principle. You think you know? because you have knowledge, look, you're inverting this man. Your Lord Jesus loves and then gives you to love, and that's the love and knowledge sequence of this in chapter 3. So it's a short argument, but to to just draw it out in the context of Jesus' life and ministry, that's what it is. Well, and I think that that's really important, because in these first three verses, he does seem to be giving the theological foundation, and he's he's really going to keep doing the theological foundation in verses four to six before he really applies it more specifically to this matter of meat sacrificed to idols in the verses that follow. But I, I think it's important to see this foundation that he lays. And as you were talking, it, it also reminded me of, of some of the things that he said in chapter seven. Now, in, in chapter seven, he was dealing a lot with marriage and celibacy and those kinds of things. 
But within that, he laid a theological foundation there, and he talked about what it means to live now, knowing that the appointed time has grown very short, and that the present form of this world is passing away. And, and I think that, too, is in the background of this matter when it comes to meat sacrifice to idols. Hey, it's just meat. And yeah, you might get a great deal on it at the Sam's Club because it was sacrificed, but it's just money. <laughs> Don't live with those things in the forefront. Keep your mind focused on the fact that the present form of this world is passing away. Christ, who has died for you and suffered for you and for your brother, he is returning, and live with that reality in mind when it comes to whether or not you're going to eat, buy or eat this meat that's been sacrificed to idols. Absolutely. This whole thing that you trace through 6 and 7 even goes back all the way to the comment that you made at the end of 2. This is what it means to have the mind of Christ, to set your mind not on yourself, but on your neighbor in love, to live not for yourself and your own pocketbook and money and own pleasure in life, but rather to give up those things for the benefit of your your neighbor. Yeah, yeah, and and all of that again, so that we would know nothing among ourselves but Christ and Him crucified, and that that too is Paul's aim here in chapter eight. Pastor Philip, like we're getting close to our break with eh, about two minutes or so. Introduce what what Paul says in the next couple of verses, where he he says, "So as to these idols, uh, give us an introduction, and we can pick up more of this conversation on the other side." Absolutely. So Paul is going to go back to the knowledge and affirm the knowledge that is good. He's going to go back and look at them and say, you know what? The stuff that you typically tout in your letter that, that you know, I'm quoting to you and that, you know, you usually say about things such as, oh, an idol has no real existence and there is no God but one. That is good and that is right and that is true. And he's going to expound all of that to talk about how there there might be so many other gods, not that they're real, he's not giving credence to the gods, but what he is saying is, you know, the world might chase after all these things, and there's so many gods and Lord, and yet for us, and you might think, uh-oh, relativism, so we'll have to pick up that on the, on the way back, only for us, but for you, it's, it's, it's a different god. No, no, no. He ends up with the one, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things, who are all things, and whom we exist. So he goes to this general argument of creation, creation and how God creates everything. And so you can't really, and I'll explain this, I guess, as we go on, but you can't really take those words to be relative when he expands to creation and governing all things, right? He's he's not giving credence to false gods. He's, he's actually saying, so there might be all of these things, but we know the truth. And so he has to look at them and talk about what they know and why it's good and right, the knowledge that they know, but then refocus their attention on how to use that knowledge in love. That's right. So we'll pick up more of that knowledge, what it is specifically, as Paul's going to reference the Old Testament here, and then how to use that knowledge on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Adam Philippek this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Lutheran Church Extension Fund exists to support Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and church workers. How do we do this? Your investment with LCEF makes it possible for LCMS churches, schools, organizations, and church workers to receive low-cost loans for new and growing ministries. And faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, make that possible when you invest with LCEF. 
Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC-insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, November 30th. We're studying 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 13 with the Reverend Dr. Adam Filipek. He serves at Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran Churches, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Filipek, prior to the break, we were looking at verses 4 to 6, where Paul is going to affirm what they do know, the things that are true. This is right knowledge. It is good knowledge particularly that idols have no real existence. There is no God but one. You mentioned that that some of the language there, we need to make sure we understand not in a relativistic way when he says, for us. We need to understand that in an absolute way. This is true knowledge for everyone. Uh, keep keep taking us into what Paul says they know that is true in verses 4 to 6. Yeah, so the first two things that he sets up is affirming what he has already said and the knowledge that they possess. We all all possess this knowledge. That's what they said. We all possess this knowledge that there is no real idol. Idols don't exist. That's the first true statement that he affirms. And there is no God but one. So that's what they say. Now you get the cryptic for although there may be, and here's where it gets really careful to pay attention so that you don't get, oh, this relativistic understanding, because the next word are so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. So he's he's making a reference to um, what's going on in Corinth. Demeter, Zeus, all of these people, I mean, we got these all over the place, and they're so-called gods but you are right because there is really only for us one Lord and for us is not just us as Christians because the so-called God governs that whole thing. So they're not really real. For us as creatures, there's really just one God. And why I say creatures is because the next thing he goes to is creation. He actually talks about one God and that God, the Father, from whom are all things and whom we exist. So notice, it's not just, oh, the Christians exist because, well, that uh, the true God created us, but everybody else exists because Zeus, no, 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 no. They're so-called gods. And so you're right in affirming that, and yet he's looking at the culture at the same time and commenting that, at the culture and drawing their knowledge to where they, the culture and their confession meet. There's only one God, and he created everything. And then, notice the God is followed by the Lord Jesus Christ. This, this dual construction of one God and one Lord is the construction of Deuteronomy chapter 6, the great Shema. Like I said earlier, Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Akkad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So this is establishing a beautiful oneness of the Trinity. There is one God, 
one Lord, the Father and the Son are united together. Now we'll get to the Spirit. We've already gotten to the Spirit in 6. We'll get to the Spirit again in, in 12. He hasn't left the Spirit out. But the whole point is what you would normally hear a, a Jewish Christian say and what the Gentiles have indeed been taught in the Old Testament. What you would hear a Christian express in the Old Testament is Deuteronomy 6, that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he's used this to say, see this Father, see this Son, one God, one Lord over all things created, even if they don't believe in him. The rest are just so-called gods. So he's affirmed their knowledge, like you're right, everything that you said is right, and he's even given teeth to that knowledge by going back to the Shema and saying, this is the one true God. And by the way, that means Jesus, right? I mean, so, so that's yeah. kind of the, uh, the, the description of here. And that, that's the beautiful aspect of the knowledge that he's affirming. So knowledge is not bad at all. Paul affirms all of that. And it all hinges on who God is and what he has said and done in the person and work of Jesus, Old Testament through New Testament. Yeah, so I mean, and I think you're right to to connect that in the context of idol worship, right? Here is this one true God, and, and specifically we need to remember the Lord Jesus Christ over and over again in chapter 1. It was in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ kept coming up. Connecting that to the God of the Old Testament from Deuteronomy 6 is a huge thing, so that we do see that, that Paul understands I think we can say this, that he understands Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 to be compatible with the Trinitarian faith, right? I mean, you know, like, so that, as I've said elsewhere, you know, maybe maybe Moses would not have written the Athanasian Creed as it stands, but if he were to hear it today, he would say amen to it. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And yeah, Paul knows this. This is a classic Paul, not just in Corinth. He does this in Ephesians. He does this in Galatians. I mean, he just carries this this sort of Trinitarian form formula through all and all and all things. Yeah, and to, to as you said, he's not leaving the Spirit out. He certainly includes the Spirit. You mentioned chapter 12, which is where uh, Paul says, no one confesses that Jesus is Lord, which is right here, except by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, Trinitarian. Hey, you read absolutely. my mind. That's the verse I was literally thinking. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. That's wonderful. Yeah. So so Paul is Trinitarian. The Old Testament is Trinitarian. The one true God is the triune God. Paul makes this very clear. And as he says, these are things that we know. So that's good. That's good that we know these things. But as he's already started to establish for, for us, that knowledge is not going to be the only thing at play when it comes to how we live with meat offered to idols. So that's where he makes this turn then in verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge. And he starts talking about eating meat offered to idols, more specifically, those whose consciences are weak and how they will receive this. What's Paul doing as he now begins to apply it more specifically in verse 7? So what I like about verse 7 is beyond Paul just being awesome at his theology, he's he's a rhetorician, right? And so in, in rhetoric and in, in a persuasive speech, it's important to acknowledge what your, what your opponents have said, what they're touting up, and to show them as well where they're wrong. He quoted them earlier saying, all possess this knowledge, and here's the knowledge, but not all possess that knowledge, right? I mean, so he turns that to say, no, 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 uh-uh, you're faulty. Not all possess this. They all believe, 
but they're not firm in this. They're not fully firm, instructed, and catechized in this. They're not mature in this, as you seem to think they are when you tell them to, and I know this is a, a horrible paraphrase, but suck it up, buttercup, and eat the eat the meat, right? It's, it's not, no, it doesn't work like that. They're not firmly established in the same knowledge as a mature Christian who believes that idols are nothing because that there is only one true God, so that even the meat offered in the pagan temples and in the marketplaces, it's really God's meat, not the idols, you know, not the idols' meat, because the cow or the bull that was sacrificed was made by God. Like, that's what you get. That's four and, and five and six, seven here, into seven here, is that not all people get that. Therefore, you know, in terms of your own things, yeah, buying discounted meat in the marketplace is not a sin, or participation in, in um, you know, eating a meal in, in public, even if that meat's been sacrificed, is not a sin per se. But not all can say that among you. There are those, are there not, who don't say that, who don't possess that knowledge, even though you say. And so those less mature Christians, those um, early church had the word for like neophytes for these new Christians, the, the beginning ones that are, are, are in the, the initial phases of catechesis, that have come to faith, have not, haven't been Christians for too long. Um, some of them have even participated in idolatry before this, were called out of wash, worshiping Demeter and Zeus and all this into the, into the Christian faith in this Gentilic land. So they, they themselves are less mature in that they're not firmly established in or possessing this knowledge. They once who participated in the Greek war, god worship and eating meat sacrificed in the dining hall of the pagan temple, these Christians, they can stumble very easily. These Christians believe that if they buy this meat in the marketplace, if they eat this in their homes or in the public squares, you know, not not we're not quite yet in the full-blown service that's 10, but also, you know, in the in the inner sanctuary, the lower sanctuary and middle sanctuary rather, uh, of the of the pagan temples, then this will be an issue for them on the first commandment. They they will think they're per, actually turning their back on God and going back to their formal form former life and participating in idolatry. They believe they're breaking the first commandment. That's a mortally wounded conscience right there. They are going to have heaping feelings of great guilt and shame upon them that they might never recover from. Uh, I, I I don't want to get into the early church stuff. I mean, but this is the 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 Donatist controversy, right? Those who those who fell away from the faith uh, and denied the faith to save their lives, can they be welcomed back? Can they be forgiven? I mean, this is a reality in that time period of struggling, because um, I didn't want to lose my life, and so I denied Jesus. And here it's 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 meat, like that they they will they will give up, they will be shamed, and they'll believe that no one could or would forgive them after what they've done. Yeah. Now, in verse 8, then, Paul, it sounds like Paul's getting back to, hey, this is what we know again, when he says, food will not commend us to God, we are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. That that sounds like, again, more specific to knowledge in this particular case that they know, and he's acknowledging, hey, here is what you do know, and it is true, but then as he progresses, it's going to be, but make sure you don't use it the wrong way. Your interpretation is absolutely right. He goes back and realizes, and look, I agree with you, right? This is this is what we know to be true 
from even doing, even with the, the whole Peter, Cornelius, all that stuff, do not call unclean what God has called clean, right? I mean, so we know this. We've had this whole controversy even in Jerusalem. And now it's in the Gentilic land, and he acknowledges, you know, food doesn't commend you to God, meaning it doesn't make your standing before God any better. It's not like if I don't eat, I'm better off. Or if I do eat, look at me, see, I understand everybody else, and absolutely not. Food doesn't save you. It's not the outward stuff. It's the heart of man. Mark 7, right? It's not, from, it's not from without that a man is defiled, but from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts. And he lists a whole bunch of those things. So, so it's not the external stuff that really matters. I mean, that doesn't make your status before God any better. It's not like you're going to get to heaven because you ate or because you didn't. It doesn't make your standing before God any better, actually. Um, we are no worse. We are no better off. It's, it's, it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. For you, yeah, you're not sinning if you participate or don't. And that's where eight leaves you. You're not sinning if you participate or don't. Right. So, okay, the, the sin is not going to be found whether or not you participate. And you, you are right in this knowledge that you are claiming in this instant. But in verse 9, be careful. What do we need to be careful of in verse 9? Yeah, be, care, t- be careful, take care that... This right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So notice, you who have right knowledge about who God is and what he does, even to the point that you too were pagans, idolatrously worshiping, and I'm going to add this, like your ancestors before you, like Abraham and Terah, like even all of you, were called by me and loved by me, and I gave up everything for you. So now that you are in this relationship with me and you know the truth, be careful how you use that truth. Don't use it to yourself. Don't use it with an eye to yourself. Oh, all things are under my power and all con- on all my control. I can do all things. I am victorious over all things. It doesn't matter whether I eat or not. It doesn't matter if death is knocking at my door. Mine is the victory. It doesn't matter if anything is. You have power over those things. And I think this is really important. I don't want to make a big deal of this because you could, I mean, this is a rabbit hole, but the word here is not right. Um, it's it's authority, all exousia, like all exousia, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, go therefore. It's the same word that Jesus uses upon his ascension. He could have used all of his power and authority as God throughout his ministry, but he didn't count equality with something to God to be grasped. He made himself lower. He humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. He gave everything up for the sake of you. And so that's that authority then risen from the dead is now given to God. He uses that in Christ. Well, this is that same word. You have power and authority over all of these things. You know, it, the meat's not going to affect you. Uh, you know, death is not, you're free from that. So maybe, maybe the better word, because I, I don't like right here, because when we think of right, we think of entitlement. It's mine, I can do whatever I want with it, and how dare anyone try to, I have a right. Well, 
to interpret, to hear that word in 21st century America that way is actually to go against what Paul is saying. You know, you're, you're putting yourself in the camp of the prideful from verse 1. So maybe um, a better way, authority would be good, but maybe just a better way to say this. Take care that your ability to eat or not eat does not actually affect your brother, your weaker brother who really struggles over this, right? Be careful on what you do in your eating or abstaining. Think about that. And when you think about that, don't think about yourself. Oh, it's my right. It's my authority. No, think about your neighbor. Think about the weaker brother whom your conscience could mortally wound. And, you know, Paul in his letter to the to, to, to Pastor Timothy in chapter 1 talks about, you know, preaching of false doctrines. And he tells Timothy that the aim or goal to tell people of stop preaching false doctrine in 1 Timothy 1.5, he says, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So love looks not at self and what self wants and what self should get, and it's my right. Love sets aside its ability, sets aside its authority, sets aside its right for the sake of the weaker brother in love. That's what you need to pay attention to. Pay attention to that you do not a stumbling block for the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, right? So he's used that word stumbling block before. Be careful that you don't prevent someone from remaining and being steadfast in Christ. Yeah, I like I like the word ability for that translation, and and just I think it, it it does keep it a broader application than the word right would. And again, as as you were you were talking about this authority or this ability that are, is given to Christians, my mind again went back to chapter six, where Paul talks about again the matter of lawsuits between believers. He said, "Hey, don't you don't you know you're going to judge the angels?" And and I mean, you think about that sort of authority. Although the word authority may not be used there specifically, that is a, a type of authority. And, and it could go to your head. And, and, and Paul says, don't let that happen. Don't let this ability that you have puff you up so that you forget about your brother whom, whom, for whom Christ died. And, and that's where Paul's really going to take us. Like, well, what's the big deal, Paul? It doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal. Sure, he might get offended, but, well, who cares? Well, Paul lays out the seriousness of where this leads as he takes us into verses uh, 10 and following. Help us out with that, Pastor Philippic. Sure. So just picking backing uh, on your who cares comment, because that's exactly it. Uh, Christ cares the night in which he was betrayed. Love one another as I have loved you. And by this, the world will know that you are my disciples. And I emphasize the love and the know because they fit very nicely here. So, so your eye isn't for yourself. Rather, the first thought that you have, it's just kind of like, Honestly, in a marriage, right? Your first thought is not about what can I get from my wife, but actually what am I able to do for this one who's entrusted to me that I love and care? And then that, that yeah, that she, the same, and we get into all that sort of stuff, but your I in a marriage is to live not for yourself, but for your, for another. And it's the same thing too. You are in that marriage, Christ and his church. So live with an eye toward your husband. And what does your husband do? He loves his bride. So you ought to love your fellow Christians and your and that bride too. If anyone sees that this then, so if you think, just verse 10, if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, so this is now that lower dining hall, that public part 
Like, if you don't participate in this, you could be excluded from society. So you have plenty of Christians who are like, uh, it's fine. I, I don't want to be excluded from society and ostracized. I still need to live here. So I'll do that knowing that it's nothing. So now we're actually talking about eating in the idol's temple, the public eating of this. He Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat the food offered to idols? Like he's following the progression. If he sees you that... Isn't that kind of like um, peer pressure, right? Shaming him into those things. And where will that be, where will that get your brother? It will get your brother lost. It will brother get your brother he, he, heaped in guilt and shame. You will actually have wounded that conscience when the goal of the command is to love with a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And you're robbing your brother of that. You're hurting your brother. So he he, he draws your attention to what you're eating would actually do in pressuring them to participate and what the outcome of that is. Right. And and just in case you you don't think your brother is all that important, Paul wants you to know what Christ thinks of your brother. Christ died for your brother. And, and so I mean and again he just every it seems like every verse it just grows, right? When you do this, you're actually wounding your brother for whom Christ died. And then the next thing and you're not just sinning against your brother, you're therefore sinning against Christ. Keep taking us through this progression that Paul lays out. Absolutely. So in 11, in 11 he follows that knowledge that goes back to, to, um, to if anyone imagines that he knows something, he doesn't know, right? So you, you, you think you got this whole Christianity thing figured out, and I can do whatever, but the fact that you're doing whatever you want literally means that you sort of just have an idol, and it's you. You're puffed up. You want to win. You do all that. And in so doing, you know what you do? You actually not only um, have an idol, but that idol destroys your brother. And that brother is one for whom Christ died for. So don't you see your brother, the weaker one, was loved by Christ just as much as you. Christ gave up everything. He sacrificed himself for the weaker brother like he sacrificed himself for you, and you're refusing to give up anything. You're peer pressuring that guy by what you're doing, or, or, or Gano Gal in terms of all of that, and you're actually destroying them. That's not what Christianity does. Love one another as I have loved you, and you brought it to the two commandments. And this is exactly right. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these hang the law and the prophets. And that's just it. You, you think you're doing something? You, you, don't, you don't actually know. Your knowledge is not, doing, is not loving your neighbor. It's destroying your neighbor when Christ loved by death and sacrifice. Yeah, and, and then in sinning against your neighbor in that way, you are actually sinning against Christ. So the again, those two great commandments hang together. There you have not loved your neighbor, and so you also have not loved Christ. And I mean, you sin against him, Paul says, which uh, I know we're coming up, but do you think about the way that he says, he talks later about being guilty concerning the body and blood of Jesus later in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? Here you're sinning against Christ by by failing to love your neighbor. This is a serious thing. So what started out as, you can do whatever you want to do, it's fine, your knowledge, has actually become, no, it's, it's not fine. And how you use your freedom might actually not only cause one of these little ones to stumble, but it's a sin against me. And so your sin against your brother, 
You sin against me because I died for your brother. And this progression of snowball will pretty soon, what, be, what was a trivial matter becomes not so trivial anymore. How you use your freedom, not for yourself, but for your neighbor, matters. Yeah, that's right. So take us into Paul's conclusion for this chapter. He will continue with this issue going forward, but how does he conclude, at least for this point? Yep, so therefore, he says, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, Hmm. lest I make my brother stumble. So if this is really what this is about, Right, and it's my enjoyment, and I know, and I. It's about my social status. It's about my love of the meat and the food. It's about the love of discounted meat, whatever the case may be. Any one of those three things, all of these things, then that ain't Christianity, man. That's sinful, prideful idolatry. Because you were called out of that. You were called out of darkness into the marvelous light of salvation. I have loved you. In this is love, not that you love, but that I loved you. And so love your neighbor as yourself. And so Paul rightly concludes that, you know, when I look at things that I could do or couldn't do, I shouldn't look at the things that aren't commanded specifically in Scripture or forbidden in Scripture that are just kind of that in-between, I got to think through these things and wrestle with application, that sort of kind of gray area. Sometimes it gets called adiaphora. But, that, I mean, the, if I do that here, then Adiaphra is not indifferent, is it? Because he says because he says at the end of this, well, you know what, that, that's actually sin against your neighbor if you do that. So his whole point in this is, if it costs me everything, my money, my social status, and even my own prideful, arrogant knowledge, then I'll give it all up. As Christ gave it all up for me, gave everything unto death, I will follow in the footsteps of my master. As a servant, I will love as I have been loved. And so for the sake of my neighbor who needs it, I will love my neighbor and I will refrain from doing anything that might benefit me or that I might enjoy. I use my freedom for my neighbor. Yeah, and, and God grant that that same attitude of love toward the brother in Christ would permeate the church still today. The Reverend Dr. Adam Philippek is pastor at Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran Churches, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. He's been helping us today to study 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. Pastor Philippek, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge is good. It is good to know Christ as the only true God, to know that he is the one crucified for your sins and raised for your justification. Now use that knowledge in love for your brother, the one for whom Christ died. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about 1 Corinthians 8, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.